You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a criticism against celebrities that they're out of touch, they it could be a phenomenon that for years you've had handlers who never really tell you no or they massage it in the nicest way possible before you get that news. And you become aloof, you become out of touch, uh, let them eat cake, that sort of thing. Well, what if you were a celebrity who had the ability to kill people, to kill your enemies? You had a goon squad with weapons. Spy is a criminal. To be a spy is very bad. This is the cabinet meeting that Idi Amin is having with. You could imagine what your staff meeting is like at work and then times 1,000, right? Everybody must be checked his politics for about three or five years. And if he's found to be spy, his case is a firing squad. He's telling his ministers that they have lost the confidence of the people. They must do better to communicate, you know, things that sound very well and good. And they're all paying much attention, scribbling down notes. Idi Amin was one of two British officers in Uganda who were Ugandan, who were African, when the nation became independent. He was large, a former heavyweight boxing champ, six foot four, 240 pounds. One reporter said of him, he's joking all the time, especially if he feels he had an audience. A populist demagogue, xenophobe, who insultingly personalized his relations with other countries. Henry Kissinger was afraid of him. British Prime Minister Edward Heath should be grateful for the food aid that Uganda plans to send to his country. Later, when the British completely moved out of Uganda in 77, he would say that he had finally defeated them and add words to his title, Conqueror of the British Empire. It made all of the titles that he gave himself made for a very long radio announcement when people would refer to him by name. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Alaji, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MCCBE, last being conqueror of the British Empire. And when he rose up as part of British colonial force in Uganda before Uganda gained independence, he was a soldier. His British officers complimented him. He was effective. We're going to talk today to Scott Rank. Scott Rank is the host of A History Unplugged. It's a podcast that I like a lot. He's got a great series on Civil War battles, Revolutionary War battles. So you'll want to listen to him. He has a book out called History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. And we're going to have a talk with him about it. Obviously, Idi Amin is on that list. Some question his methods uh, being 
somewhat sadistic. He would use a machete to threaten enemies if they needed to, but they figured, well, this is Africa, so you have to do what you need to do to get the job done. In um, when Uganda gains independence, there's a lot of optimism that as colonialism colonies are leaving Africa, Africa is gaining independence, it's, it will finally be able to share in the prosperity that was taken from it by the French and the British or Belgians, whoever else. Uh, but very soon after Idi Amin takes power, he starts to liquidate enemies. He seized power in 1971, made himself president and dissolved parliament, ended elections, his secret police, most of them in plain clothes, exercised absolute power at his command. No one really can calculate the death toll. The International Commission of Jurists has it at 80,000, Amnesty International at 500,000. Sometimes it's um, a minister who went to a European-style boarding school in Africa, and Idi Amin, whether due to insecurity, feeling that he's being talked down to as someone who is uh, only moderately educated, liquidates those people. But then it starts to spread out from there, from political enemies into groups who are not 200% behind him. And uh, one thing that Idi Amin had was a very wide group of informants. So many people, thousands, maybe tens of thousands in Uganda were on his payroll. And it had a chilling effect across society, where if you don't like Idi Amin and you want to remove him from power, who do you talk to? Maybe you can talk to your neighbor who you've been friends with for a long time, but you don't know if his daughter supports or doesn't support Idi Amin. You don't know if her boyfriend does. We know that immediately upon seizing power, the Supreme Court justice and the head of the Anglican Church, the head bishop, were assassinated. So were hundreds of officers who were aligned with the previous government. But still, when he came into Kampala and seized power from the previous president, many lined the streets to celebrate. Previous government was corrupt. Idi Amin was known for dealing with rebels in a part of the country and specifically the Battle of Mango Hill that he would talk about, where he was sent to put down rebels who were aligned to a different king from the government, and they were armed with very bad rifles. And yet, as he would tell the story, this is a reporter describing it, bullets could not touch him. He was selected by God to walk with kings and presidents and prime ministers. Anybody found his spy, his case must be dealt with with military tribunals. Once it's confirmed, even military tribunals should not waste time of making law whole day discussing about one person who is a spy. Must be shortcut. When he had a dream and came to an idea that 35,000 Asians in Uganda who held positions as shopkeepers, ministers, bankers, other professionals should be expelled from the country. He told his troops next day to start executing the policy. So there were a number of people from India who lived in Uganda. They had been there for two or three generations and formed a large part of the merchant class. And for Idi Amin, who um, he gave the high-level positions and most trusted positions to people of his tribal background. And you see things like that in the Middle East as well. I think Saddam Hussein had a lot of people from his hometown um, th there's a sense of a tie of loyalty that you wouldn't have with other groups. And for him and others, there's an idea that privileged positions in society, government posts, um, 
those who've excelled at business come from a so-called foreign background, and we need to rightfully take back what is ours. So within a pace of space of about two or three days, there was a deportation order given to all people of Indian background in Uganda, many people who their fathers might have been born there, but they were still told to leave because they were seen as this threatening foreign element that had robbed uh, Ugandans of their rightful privilege. So throughout Amin's presidency, which would last till 79, the immediate attention that we would get was for his absurdity. And certainly during the summer of 1972, when Israeli athletes were killed in Munich by Palestinian terrorists, he praises Hitler, applauds the murder, and breaks relations with Britain and Israel. His religion was Islam, but other significant countries, uh, Syria, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, wanted very little to do with him. His only ally was Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. He was particularly suspicious of Western press. Here's how one reporter described how he dealt with them. I had myself had a glimpse of Amin's cruelty and cunning one morning in Kampala when the police band were giving a concert as part of a major ceremony. The dictator in full uniform stepped forward at a break between numbers, seized the baton from a quivering conductor, and barged into action. The official police photographer appeared on cue to record this spontaneous event. Then came the trap. Spotting me in the crowd, Amin declared, There is my best friend Patrick. He will do the next number. With that, he signaled to the cameraman, who moved into position, ready to take the compromising photo that would have me standing next to the dictator. It was clever. It would make me immediately suspect in the media world. All my reporting from then on, he thought, would be for naught. No one would take him seriously. I hastily resorted to a coughing fit, face in handkerchief, and left. I recounted the event over lunch that day, sitting on the veranda of a hotel with the leader of the Ugandan Bar Association. The lawyer points out that a plainclothes police officer is watching them. Patrick, the time to leave Uganda is now, this afternoon. The reporter takes his advice and never sees the member of the Bar Association again. Um, later, this reporter who covers events in Africa found out that he couldn't even be on a plane that was refueling in Uganda because he had been put on a maid's death list. Eventually, things are so terrible that Britain uh, provides military aid to Tanzania and Idi Amin flees. Many people, he has many enemies, they join, take over the capital. Gaddafi tries to send support to Amin's government, but it's too late. Afi's troops turn around after suffering some casualties, and a deal brokered by Saudi Arabia has Amin fleeing there, living in Jeddah, if he remains quiet, which he does. So from 79 to 2003, you don't hear a word. Uh, but for the rest of his life, he lives in Saudi Arabia, and he died at the age of, I don't know, in his 70s or 80s. He lived to 2003 and had all the comfort that was denied to his victims. Essentially, the Saudi Arabians thought he was doing too much damage to Islam by being a significant leader. There's actually a uh, an account um, that I saw in Quora where Saudi Arabian saw him at the grocery store. Oh, how the mighty had fallen, he said. I am talking with Scott Rank, who is the podcaster over at History Unplugged. Now, if you're not subscribed, you should subscribe to that. I am a subscriber 
Lots of good episodes there. He's also the author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers, and he joins me on the program. Scott, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, your book, uh, well, the title says it all, right? It's about <laughs> <laughs> nine rulers. And uh, before I forget to do it, let's just get a, a the, the, the nine, um, the, the list of the nine that you feature in your book. Yeah, so uh, very briefly, the nine are Emperor Caligula of Rome, uh, Charles VI of France, the guy who thought he was made of glass, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim I, British King George III, uh, Ludwig of Bavaria, who built Neuschwanstein and those uh, castles, Idi Amin, Akbar Turkmenbashi, and Kim Jong-il. How, how was it writing a book about these folks? I mean, sometimes it is depressing because when you don't have your... Uh, mental faculties intact that can lead to uh, torture and things like of that nature, which happens across the board. But there are a little bit more lighthearted moments, if we want to call it that. Um, someone that I think stands out a lot is uh, Saparmurat Niazov, who is the former president of Turkmenistan, but he went by the honorary name Akbar Turkmenbashi. Uh, which, if you translate it, just sounds completely ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous in any language. It's sort of like uh, the great father of all Turkmen, um, <laughs> which he gave to himself. And he had an 80-foot-tall statue of himself in Ashgabat, the capital, that rotated to face the sun. Um, so it's funny when it's not depressing. And it, I, I think it, it hopefully gives a little bit of perspective that our politicians in the United States, I get it, they're weird. and. There are some of them I'm definitely worried about, but it's much worse in other times and places if that means anything. What I found interesting about the Turkmenistan uh, president is that he actually changes the calendar to uh, be be to change the months uh, to be about himself and his <laughs> relatives. Yeah, so he his background is interesting because um, Turkmenbashi, I'll just call him that. He was the head of the uh, Turkmen, Turkmen Soviet Socialist Republic. And then when Turkmenistan gained independence in 1990 or so, he was the first president. Well, he uh, was trained under Stalinistic Soviet style tactics of self-promotion. And there's a lot of interesting carryover from Stalin to him. So if you look at a Soviet era poster, there's Stalin absolutely gigantic in the foreground. He looks like a Bollywood poster um, with Soviet citizens in the background, smiling peasants and people at factories enjoying universal prosperity. And then in Turkmenistan's independent era, there's Turkmenbashi with his big image in front of <laughs> smiling Turkmen people enjoying their prosperity. But he actually, he cranks it up from Joseph Stalin. Um, Joseph Stalin would have statues of himself and Lenin and Karl Marx in different Soviet capitals uh, and have large parades. Turkmenbashi, like you said, has all those things, but he has much bigger statues. He renamed days of the week and months of the year after himself and his dead mother. There was a city named after him. There was an asteroid named after him. There was a brand of vodka called uh, Turkmenbashi vodka. I don't know if he produced it like Trump steaks or if he just gave his name to it or something, but uh, yeah, it's um, he's interesting because I think there's almost a childlike innocence that what he's doing truly is for the good of Turkmenistan. He's giving them a national ruler to rally around. Um, he wrote a religious book as well that's like fourth rate Tony Robbins knockoff. <laughs> and he, he's not completely literate either, but 
this that seemed to be a reoccurring theme that some people were cynical in how they promoted themselves, but others truly seemed to believe that what they were doing was helping people. And then you, of course, get into uh, Kim Jong Il, uh, North Korea, and of course, North Korea is still on our minds. You know, I think it's just fascinating in general. There's nothing more foreign to us because of uh, the leaders that they've had. And it's just so bizarre. And I don't think, it, you know, we can even get our heads around it. Now, to a certain extent, with historical perspective, I do think growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, we did sort of view the Soviet Union in similar terms. There was this kind of black box to the Soviet Union. I mean, I think there was a little more light even then in terms of the leaders. And you had people who were like Kremlinologists here. And then China, up until the opening, up until Nixon's visit, was another kind of a black box where it was just like, you know, you don't know what's going on there. And I think the country that remains in that, to my mind, is uh, is North Korea. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to pin down and trying to explain how you get people like Kim Jong-il, who threatens uh, the world with rockets, but he's an Elvis fan and has the bouffant uh, hairstyle like the king does, or Kim Jong-un, who carries on the nuclear program, wants to wipe out the West, at least he claims to. And there's um, propaganda posters with racist imagery of Americans as a Mongol race. But he parties with Dennis Rodman and he flies in Dennis Rodman (laughs) to the Capitol. Um, And there's an interesting book about North Korea. I think it's called The Cleanest Race. And the argument is North Korea it's not quite accurate to think of it as a carryover of the Soviet Union, even though it has a similar type of government structure. At least if we're looking at its ideology, it has a lot to borrow from fascist imperialist Japan, where Japan has this idea of a clean race, sort of like this Aryan conceptualization of itself, uh, combined with fascism as it looks to expand outward into the rest of the East Asian uh, sphere. Um, yeah, and in terms of Kim Jong-il, uh, what explained him? What did it also explain Kim Jong-un? And when I was describing that almost innocent belief that when one is doing something buffoonish and self-promotion, they're actually helping people. Uh, there's a concept in Korean politics called jush, if I'm pronouncing it right. I have no idea. But <laughs> it, it's sort of like you're, um, the collective will of the people is represented in the person of a leader. So this leader is the avatar of the collective will of the North Koreans. So if Kim Jong-il claimed that the first time he golfed, he shot five holes in one and hit 38 under par, if you or I were to say that, people would laugh at us, and they should laugh at us because that's a ridiculous thing to say. Mm -hmm. When Kim Jong-il says that, somehow he's stating that there's a supernatural greatness to the Korean people. And by him able to do that, it shows the potential of the people. And they, when they hear that thing, something like that, they can be inspired. Um, and then there's all sorts of other North Korean official propaganda of Kim Jong-il that <clears throat> when he was born, there was a new star that appeared in the sky and winter changed to spring. And then a double <laughs> rainbow appeared in the sky and something else like that happened at his death where the heavens themselves mourned at his passing. It, it sounds like something you would read out of a chronicle or from Sumeria or Assyria that when Usher Bonapal the Great died, the heavens wept. And um, so I, I think what Kim Jong-il does is he's a connection to the past in a way because we don't have dynasties 
really anywhere else in the world in the same way. Like we, yeah, we still have monarchies, but they're figureheads. They don't really have any power. But when you have a dynasty, you're going to put your child on the throne, regardless of how mentally hell well or mentally unwell they are, because otherwise your dynasty falls apart. Uh, so this gives us a link to the past in that way. Um, so that's, that's at least a justification for what North Korea does. Um, but everything else about it, it is a police state and a prison state. Uh, it sounds like 1984, any other place you say that you'd, you would be exaggerating by staying that, but there with the way that people are required to have pictures of Kim Jong-il and his father in everyone's house. Um, at least they did a few years ago or the way that there are radios in almost every house and they're tuned to, the government station. So you, even in your own home, you can't escape the relentless propaganda. It's arguably the most brutal place on earth to live, but somehow the Kim family believes, I, I, I think that there is a large element where they truly do believe this is for the good of people by us doing these things. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting philosophy because there are elements of that in a lot of different govern governing systems but just on on that point you're absolutely right it's like you know it, it, sometimes american um propaganda or if, if if we're out there you know wearing the flag all the time waving the flag all the time you know we can get to be a little much and some politicians we know wave the flag just to kind of support their position um but on the other hand when you think about one of the reasons you're proud to be an american you compare it to a country like that and we uh, and how important uh freedom of speech um is in in America and the other parts of the globe where where you have it versus uh the, the there couldn't be a more extreme example than than a place like North Korea where we're almost agree and it just shows we have to treasure free press and those who are asking the questions and now you have not uh, a lot of people will say, oh, this is the end of free press. And I always say, well, actually, I mean, there's more of it now in some ways than, than ever because you have little press. You have guys like us that can do our podcast and social media. And when something is posted, boy, if there's propaganda in it, you're going to see, you know, 300 uh, other tweets criticizing it. Of course, some of those comment tweets will be bots and propaganda as well so it's just a it's a whole circle but there's a lot of a heck of a lot of speech may arguably even more than in other times i think americans it goes back to say jefferson but he's just representing which I, what i think was the feeling of a lot of people at that time or small r republican government we don't trust men that much we don't want to we don't want someone having you know very suspicious of power and and i think people um in our politics today are more like that small r republican than they realize they may not think they are but they they kind of are because we do it we we might do it in a partisan way we are very suspicious of anyone in the other party who has too much power right so it's uh you know uh um we we apply all the skepticism to but and maybe drop it a little when it's uh somebody who's not in you know who's who's in our party we don't we might be blind to it a bit but there still remains in america that little bit of skepticism or why does this why do i have to believe this uh, um even though you get mad when you see it like if you're an obama supporter you hated 
you know, people that were um, not agreeing with Obama. Now, if you're a Trump supporter, you know, you're you're disliking uh, what you're seeing as this absolutely unfair, you know, criticism all the time. All they ever do, they're always the media is always so negative about Trump. It's um, I think people need to treasure that or else you get into the territory of one of the nine people that you're you're talking about here. Did you have a particular favorite among the nine? <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, Turkmenbashi, I mean, he is one for many of the reasons that I mentioned for uh, renaming days of the week after yourself. Very <laughs> bold mood. And one other thing, um, his book that he wrote um it's called the uh, um, and it was uh, originally started before he ever got involved as an academic project to look at the history of the Turkmen people in Central Asia. Okay, sounds interesting. He wanted it to um, be an origin story, basically to completely um, reboot the origin of the Turkmen people and claim that all of these people in past, these great folk heroes, were actually Turkmen. Uh, not completely literate, like I was mentioning. And so I, I've read parts of it. It rambles all over the place. I mean, sometimes it's fake genealogy where they'll claim, oh, this mythical person from 500 AD who's in this famous Persian chronicler, a chronicle about, the, about Central Asia, he was a Turkmen hero. So it would be like if you're writing a history, if Boris um, Johnson, the UK prime minister, wrote a historical work saying, the beginnings of the um, British people begin with Romulus and Remus when they travel to Britain. Then, 10 generations, King Arthur was born. Then you'll kind of have some real people in there like Albert the Great or Alfred the Great and uh, William the Conqueror. And so he has a weird genealogy. He'll drop in little bits of instructional advice that men should smile to show their happiness. Turkmen women are so pretty they do not need to wear makeup. So... Turkmen female newscasters weren't allowed to wear makeup for a period of time. Uh, and he also claimed that if you read this book three times, you'll automatically go to heaven because God had appeared to him a dream and claimed it as such. So he has aspirations or had aspirations of it replacing the Bible and the Quran among the religious populations of Turkmenistan. <laughs> uh, and if you wanted to enter any professional career path, if you wanted to become a doctor or lawyer or even a truck driver, part of the entrance questions for professional certification had to do with multiple choice questions of the, of the Runame. And there were reading rooms in school for this. So, um, but to get back to your uh, point earlier about being vigilant against then having skepticism against our rulers, that's what uh, got me onto this originally, mm -hmm. because a few years ago I read a news article uh, by a group of psychiatrists called duty to warn and there were about 60,000 that signed a petition claiming that Donald Trump is mentally unfit to carry out the duties of the presidency. So therefore, he is constitutionally ineligible and he should be impeached. And they were going against precedent of the Goldwater rule from the 1960s that you cannot diagnose someone who you haven't perfectly met. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I don't really care strongly about defending Donald Trump and whatever his mental state is, whether he has narcissistic personality disorder or not. Um, And like you said, people are claiming things left and right. So Trump's critics will claim that in the 2020 election. Maybe people say Joe Biden has dementia. Mm -hmm. But but then to continue the argument, some are saying that in the 21st century, populism is on the rise in a way it's never been before. So you're getting someone like Trump. You're getting in Brazil, Bolsonaro, who says all sorts of crude things all the time, too. But what it got me thinking is, okay, I get it. They're. Trump is very unconventional compared to his predecessors and the way he acted. But to damn Joe Biden and Donald Trump with very faint praise, they're both adults who can stand in front of a group of people and give a speech. Uh, They can at least do that. In, In terms of someone who is completely out there and truly lacked their mental faculties, Imagine if Joe Exotic from Tiger King were your emperor or your king. I don't want to. I don't want to. (laughs) But we do have Joe Exotics. We do have people who owned a lot of animals and loved to shoot guns or what other weapons they could at people. He ran for governor of Oklahoma. (laughs) Yeah, third place in the libertarian ticket. And um, he's seeking out a presidential pardon. So who knows what will happen there. I get what you're saying, though. I really do get what you're saying. And I think in one way... Um, so, uh, in, in one way, your book, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, uh, you, you're, you're going to say like a, the president's extreme or they're crazy. How do they stack up against these nine and then come back to me and tell me that? So in some ways it's kind of like a defense in another way. It's, I also think it's very useful to read your book. Like, Hey, here's what we got to avoid. If you start seeing these danger signals in your president, do something right. Because this is what. This is the kind of thing that um, it might have all started uh, some of these movements as a uh, as a, you know, a kind of normal, the normal politics. And then the person got political control and changed things. Um, You know, I'm thinking of, uh, gosh, I just had this author on that was uh, about the events leading right after World War one and he was talking about you know Mussolini being kind of a socialist at first, part of a regular political party, and then just deciding that democracy wasn't wasn't what was going to work for him. So it gives you that kind of line. I also feel that it's interesting because in terms of like say other American examples, we need to think about before we. Of course, these these nine are extreme and and everything like that. But we need to think about before we cast too many stones in America that particularly at local levels, you do have some people that are quite powerful and quite controlling. And when you talk about like career advancement, so uh, career advancement being determined by a particular political person's favor is really a factor in every state in the union and many of the localities in the union. Um, just to give a few examples, and we could go back to Huey Long would be the one that really jumps to mind um, with an ironclad control of uh, 
Louisiana till his assassination, the family involved in politics much long after that, um, almost complete uh, personality cult in control of a, of a state and really uh, probably was, it had his assassination had happened, uh, was going to do some damage on the national level. Uh, but I also think of something maybe even more benign, like a Richard Daly of Chicago. And uh, so Joe Biden tells this story where he goes to speak. This is the young Joe Biden, you know, when he was a <laughs> uh, young buck, just elected as a senator. And he goes to speak and he tells a joke. Actually, he tells a joke about Richard Daly, which and it's in an audience of Chicago politicals. And they don't laugh until <laughs> Richard Daly does. And then everybody laughs. And, you know, okay, it's a little volume turned down from some of the extreme examples, but Americans should realize that you do have political bosses, and there are people who are throwing their weight around, and yes, maybe not determining lives, but certainly determining political careers and where somebody's going to go in the future, absolutely, by uh, the, their their own whims. Yeah, that's interesting with Huey Long. I'm trying to remember some of those stories. I think he would go to LSU games and if he didn't like a play, he would run onto the field and try to intervene and always gave his best speeches drunk, like any good Southern politician of the depression era. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. And, um, I think that is a thing that's, uh, a difference between the past and the present. So there's a certain type of ruler who is not mentally well that I don't think we'll see much of anymore. And that's someone who's a link in the chain of a dynasty who, uh, like a Charles VI of France, he was a ruler in the 1300s. Started his reign off okay, but that was a difficult time to be a French king. It's a Hundred Years' War. Many in his family and his court had been assassinated, so that could uh, be poor for anyone's mental health. Um, and uh, mental illness that he suffered was from something called the glass delusion, which doesn't really exist anymore. It was a medieval early Renaissance uh, disorder where he thought he was made of glass. And um, he told his advisors that you have to tiptoe when you come toward me or I'll shatter. And he wouldn't bathe uh, because he also thought he would break and threaten to kill anyone that would touch him. Uh, this isn't related to the glass delusion, but he thought that he was St. George for a year and wanted to put a dragon on his family crest. And um, part of the reason that doesn't exist, existed then, but not now the glass was used by a lot of theologians and priests and preachers for the idea of holiness, that one is a clean vessel spiritually if you are like glass. That was a very common illusion. So some people, maybe they were insecure about their spiritual state and in in a type of, of obsessive compulsive disorder that they they actually thought that they were made of glass, uh, the psychosomatic way that some might think that they're allergic to EMT radiation. Or um, in, the tw in the 20th century, people start to believe that they saw an alien or they had an alien abduction encounter. Uh, you never heard about that in the 19th century, but you do today, the way that popular media and terminology can affect people's minds. Anyway, I'm uh, kind of getting off the rails here, but long story short, no, no. Charles VI, um, the... His advisors circled the wagons and they had regents to ride out the storm and George III and others did too, so that the dynasty could keep going even though he wasn't able to handle it. You really don't see that in an elective democracy or in an authoritarian state, because if you're weak, then someone else will um, take you out. But like what you were saying with Huey Long and other people, what you do see are 
people who can marshal the mass media and feel like they have a direct connection with their listeners. So Huey Long used radio. Trump has Twitter. Um, Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey, there was an attempt to overthrow him in a military coup in 2016. And in order to rally people to break, to divide the coup, he went on um, FaceTime. That's So he didn't have to go through national media or go to the state press to be able to communicate with people. He was able to do it directly. So in some ways, there are new tools to connect with people directly and bypass certain channels of democracy that they didn't even have before. I mean, I yeah, I, I, I understand it because I have listeners um, and I talk to a variety of people doing a show like this, as I'm sure you do. Um, yeah, by the way, talking to Scott Rank here of History Unplugged. I met Scott uh, back at the uh, podcast movement in Philadelphia. Um, boy, uh, that was that was a great one. And um, and uh, I enjoy his podcast very much. You should listen. He's got a lot of episodes. Um, I really enjoy your uh, your oh, the ones about the battles of the Civil War are great. Um, and the friend you have on there who's really smart and uh, learned so much uh, from from his show. But uh, and of course, in giving that plug, now I've uh, I've lost my my point that I was going to make. But I think it was uh, oh, I have uh, listeners uh, of all you know stripes and varieties and everything. And uh, so uh, you know, one person told me, look, I get so much information from the president's tweets. It's like a channel that I have that um is is available to me and everything in the media is filtered and I don't like it you know that kind of uh, of thing and I kind of understand I okay it's it's a it's a source and he will talk about everything obviously you know you he goes right to the so you're getting at least one point of view I would always tell people they should you know regardless of their political strategy get get information from a lot of sources don't just go um particularly when someone's in power don't just go to them see what others say too but um read the comments that's always a great thing about social media now is like i read articles and then make sure to read the comments underneath because there's almost more truth in there uh collectively than in in what anybody's saying huey long had his own uh pa system his own trucks um he would go across louisiana whoever was the local boss he'd attack him figuring that that boss had a lot of enemies. He was never going to pick up the boss's support until he attacked him and showed that he was strong, and that's what he did. He had a lot of guts, but he was also somebody that unchecked, um, you know, could have been possibly very uh, very dangerous and a lot subject to your kind of, I, you know, again, like the American example seems such low volume, but you take like uh, Jesse Ventura in right. – um, <laughs> Minnesota. And I, especially leading up to Trump in 2015, I did an episode say, hey, it looks like this guy might be getting some traction. What else could be like it? And, you know, Huey Long was one of them. And I also looked at Jesse Ventura. And I actually asked some people, you know, using Quora, you know, in Minnesota, what they thought of him, actually, how do you actually do? He he served a term as governor. And, you know, it, it was kind of like, well, you know, sometimes he wasn't bad. You know, sometimes he's actually able to smack the heads of the Republicans and Democrats together and get a budget passed on time. But in other cases, I felt like if something wasn't on the Jesse agenda, it wasn't getting done for Minnesota. And 
you know, like, so you get this, this, this high speed train line that he worked on because that was something that he liked. Yeah. But other things, if it wasn't, and, and we don't want to be, you know, it's American. That's, I think, a key American value. We don't like being subject to kind of the royal prerogative or the whims that we, uh, we, you know, I, I recall, uh, reading about Benjamin Rush and there's this moment where he actually goes to the United Kingdom. He goes to Great Britain and he sits in the throne. And for a few moments, he feels that energy of sitting in this throne. And as a Republican in America, he'll always remember that feeling, right? That he brings that to the future debates that he would be part of, that I never want to feel that. No man should have that kind of power that I experienced just sitting in it's not like the throne had an electric charge. It's just psychological and no man should feel that. And that's in a, but it's not something that uh, just happens automatically as Americans. We have to practice it at a value and watch out for like, Hey, uh, and again, I go back to the local level. So if you don't want to, if you want to say things are rare on like a national level, you know, cause we, cause there's so many just like the founders, um, and Madison was very afraid of factions for this reason. Uh, didn't want any one group to dominate the federal government completely. You know, you'll, in our politics today, we do have a split of the branches. It's not enough for some. It's too much for others. You have a Democratic House. You have a Republican Senate. You have a Republican President. Supreme Court primarily appointed by um, Republican presidents there. But, you, you know, you at least have one chamber that's the different party um you you always have to ask those questions like where is the power and who has it and again i'd go back to the local level because i think in some localities someone can be mayor for a very long time i think there was a governor of iowa i think it was branstead it was governor for oh, yeah. record you know and like i don't think he was a uh a dictator or anything like that. But uh, certainly there are people who acquire quite a bit of power in America. It was something Madison was specifically afraid of. Power in the states could be controlled by a faction, but not in the whole country. One of the reasons for a constitution. That's a point I probably could have made in uh, three minutes, but it took 27. But, <laughs> you know, uh, it, uh, I find myself asking this question. Do you think it would be fun to be one of Edie Amin's ministers and be working for him. <laughs> yeah, he um, that would be just about the most terrifying thing I could ever imagine. Um, and uh, your point about local politics, I was thinking about Edie Amin because it seems like what makes people go off the rails when, when we read the most outlandish examples, it's very rarely at the beginning of someone's term or their reign or whatever you want to call it. It's when they've been in power for years or even decades, and they've been marinating in this. And if there's a criticism against celebrities that they're out of touch, they it could be a phenomenon that for years you've had handlers who never really tell you no, or they massage it in the nicest way possible before you get that news, and you become aloof. You become out of touch. Uh, let them eat cake, that sort of thing. Well, what if you were a celebrity who had the ability to kill people, to kill your enemies? You had a goon squad with weapons. And Idi Amin is interesting because so up to about 200,000 people died in Idi Amin's torture chambers from the decade or so that he was in power. Um, part of what he was able to do to deflect criticism from the press is that 
he would act buffoonish and do performances at press conferences. Um, so for example, um, at queen Elizabeth's, um, silver Jubilee after 25 years in power, he requested a 25 year old pair of her undergarments to commemorate it. And he would do things to make fun of England. Like, um, when he, he, he sent to great Britain, a cargo ship full of bananas as gratitude for the good old days of colonialism, as he called it. So the press would fix on things like this, his, this, he had a number of wives. He loved to race sports cars, try to craft this playboy image. But then you didn't have to dig very far where there were torture chambers going on all over the place. And he could fashion himself as, well, I'm a true son of Africa. I'm not one of these boarding school educated foppish dandies. Um, I know how to make an African nation work. And just due to, with, with a transfer from colonial administration, independent rule, Things were shaky for a period of time, so maybe that's how he was able to exploit this. But he was sadistic, um, personally involved in the torture and mutilation of people. And uh, somebody asked me why Adolf Hitler isn't in this book, and partly I'm just burned out on anything World War II, so that's an issue. But um, sadly, I mean, Adolf Hitler was a monster. He was paranoid. He was delusional. He had syphilis. That probably didn't help him at the end. Um, but sadly, he's not alone in his company of killing thousands or millions through this type of cold calculus that Joseph Stalin would have shared and Genghis Khan would have shared. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, you see these techniques, though, and how they're used. If you take the the Nazi example, that uh, the othering of groups, and so it becomes, oh, I would have riches and prosperity if it wasn't for that that group. And that is replicated across countries and across time um, and is a dangerous sort of uh, trend to watch, you know, and uh, comes well before the naming of uh, calendars, let's say, you know, or the uh, the control of the media is uh, another one where the absolute control of it. And, and one other short thing is when I say use the term insane, I'm not speaking flippantly about mental illness. I'm using the legal definition of the term mm -hmm. where... The legal definition is a person cannot distinguish fantasy from reality. They can't conduct his or her affairs due to psychosis or is subject to uncontrollable impulsive behavior. I mean, whether someone is privately struggling with mental illness, um, clinical uh, practitioners themselves don't have a universal definition of what insanity is. Uh, but legally, legally isn't really concerned with what your personal struggle is. It's concerned with what you do. Right. Um, and that's how I gauge these people. It's not about whatever their private struggle is. It's what did they do? What were the results of their actions? So I don't. I have little compunction about throwing the word insane at Caligula versus somebody who struggles with depression. For well, example. right. I mean, and, and there's there's a lot of well, you, like you say, that the the ethics of the psychological profession do not really allow them to. Um, to really comment on the dead and the historical figures and the like. But there's a lot of speculation that someone like a Lincoln, uh, so you could look at some of the pharmaceuticals that were prescribed or, you know, it might have been headaches and things like that, but that he was suffering or, or the way he describes or letters and things like that. Calvin Coolidge, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, who wouldn't after the sun dies, um, you know, suddenly. Uh, while you're in the office of president. So there's always uh, Richard Nixon right at the point of uh, Watergate, um, you know, about to resign. And there were a lot of questions about his 
condition. And so, yeah, it's not, it's never going to be the first time that an American president had it, but we're talking about, yeah, the, the people and the actions that they, that they take in office. Um, other than, uh, what we talked about, anything else, uh, strike you that's in, important about these nine? Well, I think, uh, something you mentioned with Lincoln that's important is that, Struggling with different types of mental illness, whether it's depression or whatever, they obviously don't make someone a bad person. They simply reveal character. And uh, there's a great book about Lincoln called Lincoln's Melancholy by Joshua Shank. And he goes into uh, Lincoln's suicidal tendencies, his struggle throughout his life with depression. And his argument is that it was because of this struggle, not in spite of the struggle, that he was such an effective wartime leader, because by building resolve against his inner struggle, he had already had a strong resolve for an outer struggle. And you could look at Winston Churchill, who suffered with depression. I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr., when he was a youth, attempted suicide. But through the struggle, it's what made them great leaders. It wasn't something that defined who they were. Um, And there's some good aspects, too. I mean, some people like Arthur Schopenhauer, the philosopher, wondered if there's a connection with genius and madness. And Uh, Someone like Ludwig of Bavaria, who built these uh, castles in southern Germany, even though it's the 1800s and they're completely useless and they bankrupt Bavaria. Well, now when we talk about Bavaria and you get your Let's Go Germany or your Frommer's Guide Germany, it's almost always pictures of those castles. And Bavarian culture is synonymous now with German culture. We if we don't know about Germany, we think they all wear lederhosen and dirndls. (laughs) And if you say that to a German, they just shake their head and say, no, that's not Germany. That's Bavaria. I mean, it would be like um, a European thinking every American wears a 10-gallon hat and a bolo tie. Um, if you're from Texas, you think that's great. For you from New Jersey, me from Iowa, I'm embarrassed at the, I, the thought of it. And um, so it's an interesting question, but I guess I would say that um, – Overall, the what happens to a lot of these people, what pushes them over the edge from being a typical politician who is narcissistic, all politicians are narcissistic to some level, being buffoonish, there are many, there's Silvio Bersoloni, there's plenty of buffoonish politicians. What pushes them far over the edge is, if there's any commonality I could see with all of them, is that they commit the fundamental sin in politics, and that's to believe your own press. They start to believe it, but then it becomes the guiding light for everything, for every decision they make. And Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what 
Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. It stays that way for years and then decades. Um, Soon, after a while, you're a Muammar Gaddafi who's giving like a four-hour speech at the UN and you, you bring along your yurt that you set up in New York and but in your mind, you think that that is a reasonable course of action because of believing your own politics long enough. So that's how you get a Kim Jong-il. That's how you get these others. And if I suppose if there's anything to watch out for, I, I, I like my politicians slightly cynical. They know that there's a little bit of BS of what they're saying. Um, if they don't believe that, then there could be a danger there. True words. True words. Well, we've been speaking with Scott Rank, and uh, his book is um – History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. Go out and buy it. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appendix. Kampala, the capital of Uganda, gets its name from the Impala, which is a medium-sized antelope, has long legs, long necks, black twisted horns, and they were so present on the hills where the British chose to set up a fort, and then the capital of their colony in the Buganda Kingdom then, that it was named Hill of the Impalas, or Kampala. Mahmoud Mamdani was in Kampala in 1972. He's a third-generation Ugandan of Indian ancestry. He was born in Mumbai, but he grew up and went to school in Kampala. Saturday, the 5th of August, 1972, was one of the more pleasant Kampala evenings, he would say later. I had gone to dinner at the home of a university colleague. There were four of us at this point. Uh, Mamdani was a professor an African, two Arabs, and myself an Asian. The conversation tended around Ugandan politics as we barbecued meat. The landscape was beautiful. At 8 o'clock, it was news time, and we said, let's listen to Amin and see what he has to say. And there he was, big, burly he-man who had only recently taken over, addressing a gathering at the conference center. That center had been built by Obat, the previous president, as a venue for the Organization of African Unity Conference. He'd never get to have that conference because he was removed from power while he was on a trip in Singapore before it could happen. In any case, we watched the TV and sipped our gin tonics and listened to the new president. And then it came. His statement. The Asians must leave. In so many words. A thunderbolt out of the blue. What could one say? Mahmoud Mamdani had received a scholarship along with 26 other other Ugandan students to study in the United States. The scholarships were a part of the independence gift that the new nation had given. Mamdani joined the University of Pittsburgh in 1963, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science in 1967. 
He didn't stay quiet in the United States. He was among the many students in the northern U.S. who made the bus journey south to Birmingham, Alabama, organized by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to participate in the American Civil Rights Movement. He was jailed during the march. He was allowed to make a phone call. Mabdhani called the Ugandan ambassador in Washington, D.C. for assistance, who asked him why he was interfering in the internal affairs of a foreign country. He responded by saying, this was not an internal affair. It was a freedom struggle. Mamdani comes from a long line of Ugandans who can trace their ancestry to India. During the 19th century, mostly Punjabi Sikhs were brought to Uganda on three-year contracts. Then Hindu and Muslim free migrants came to serve the economic needs of the settlers, you know, working as indentured laborers to the settlers there and to capitalize on the economic opportunities that might be greater than in their own countries. Generations of Indians lived in Uganda. But Uganda gained independence in 1962, and from that moment, the status of agents became not clear. But it was particularly so when the president, Obat, was overthrown by Idi Amin. Now, after this television broadcast... Each day, Mamdani and others would watch the television. During the months of August and September, he said, it was government by broadcast in Uganda. Every evening at 8 o'clock, we all sat glued to the television sets. A new tune signaled the beginning of the news. The lyric went, farewell to Asians, you have milked the economy for too long. That was the song that began the evening news. Inevitably, the broadcast would begin with a new restriction. Each day tonight, it was all Indians, Pakistanis, and Bangladeshi passport holders must leave. But Amin ranted a lot, so not everyone took him seriously. But the next day, Amin signed the decree. Still, could he be serious? There were 80,000 Asians in the country. Then he said, professional agents are exempt. Ah, the relief I felt. I was exempt and so were most of my friends. There were more differences between the professionals and non-professionals than you might think. Then later he said, no, there will be no exceptions. All agents, citizens or not, must leave. The Uganda Argus, arm of the government newspaper, blared, Ugandans hail move on Asians. It was overdue, say Ugandans. There was a limit of $55 applied that any Asian could export out of the country. Really, had to leave with nothing but their means of transportation. Plane ticket, a cheap car. So, you know, family tried tried tricks. Like, for instance, taking all their money and getting the most expensive car they could and driving it to Kenya, hoping to sell the car and at least to preserve some of their assets of their business. Or booking huge international plane tickets with the hope of getting a credit once the airline took the money out of Uganda. That was clamped down on. Ugandans who have Asian descent were forbidden from buying a plane ticket that was anywhere else but one destination. The Indians, Mabdani describes, were businessmen. They were crafty and they came up with the best ways they could. They'd get license plates from Kenya and put it on the car and cross the border. That usually worked. Harassment continued. 
celebrated, and went beyond the degrees. The most extraordinary event was when Amin visited a military camp and pressured them to set up camps where, quote, non-citizen Asians who have not left by November can be accommodated. There was no other way to interpret that than a concentration camp. Londani, who had just come back after living in the United States, now left Uganda for a refugee camp in the UK, just as the three-month deadline would end. It didn't all start with Idi Amin. Milton Obadi's government had pursued a policy of Africanization. His 1968 committee on the Africanization and Commerce and Industry had made far-reaching endophobic proposals and set up a system of work permit. Um, it didn't all start with Amin. Milton Obat's government had pursued a policy of Africanization and set up work permits and trade licenses to restrict the role of non-citizen Indians in economic and professional activities. Still, compared to this, Amin poured fuel on what Obat had done. It's not only beneficial to him, Amin, as it gave him businesses and cash that he could redistribute to friends and cronies. It reflected his feelings and the feelings of many of his tribesmen. It also helped him consolidate his power because it was a popular move by somebody who had just become the leader of the country. After months of ranting about the Indian community since the coup, he announces that Britain would need to take on responsibility for British subjects of Asian origin origin, accusing them of sabotaging Uganda's economy and encouraging corruption. The deadline was 8 November. He kept expanding the policy. With, despite the fact that there was international protest, here's what another refugee says, my family was happy in Kakira. They had a community. They were settled. They felt like they belonged. Life was good, and it was a huge shock when people were asked to leave. A lot of the people were wary, and I think people did have an inclination of something going on when Amin came to power, but it was still a big shock when it happened. Removed, obviously. The UK, at first, just held their normal, gentlemanly hours, moved at a slow pace, processing applications. They had people outside the embassy, protesting and lining up. But eventually, they set up army camps. Amin's decrees drew worldwide condemnation, including from India. The Indian government warned Uganda of dire consequences. But Indian governments... I mean, just ignored it. And the Indian government took no action. They continued to maintain diplomatic ties with Uganda. The UK froze a $10 million loan. I mean, didn't care. 27,000 refugees subsequently emigrated to the UK. 6,000 went to Canada. 4,500 to India. 2,500 to nearby Kenya, Mowali, Pakistan. West Germany and the United States took 1,000 refugees each, and smaller numbers went to Australia, Sweden, or New Zealand. Not all refugees are accounted for. 
it's not clear how many even left behind because the harassment was so intense and all their means and livelihood were taken away. Uh, any estimates from a few hundred to 4,000? Asians had owned many large businesses in Uganda. The purge of Asians from Uganda's economy was virtually total. 5,655 firms, ranches, farms, and agricultural estates were reallocated, along with cars, homes, and other goods. The worst part was, many of these firms and ranches and farms were then not run very well, and Uganda's economy would have some of the highest poverty rates in the African continent. Nevertheless, I find on Quora there are still defenders of Amin. This one anonymous, writing in all capital letters, Idi Amin, like Pol Pot, is touted as an evil monster of this planet. Nothing is further from the truth. The official history of Idi Amin, he was a great nationalist and a patriot. Here's another. Amin was an uneducated guy. That, I think, was his only weakness. He did more for our nation than any other did. He wasn't corrupt as far as we know. He and Obad were the best leaders we've had. If he didn't throw out the Indian Ugandans, we would have never had a chance to have Africans anywhere near the money-moving bits of the country. Our current nice dictator brought the Indians back, and guess what happens? They run the economy and employ their relatives at all levels of business. And a more objective voice says, I was nine years old in 1971 when Idi Amin came to power and 18 years when he was deposed in 1979. At first, people were elated and welcomed him when he overthrew Dr. Abbott in a military coup. He had ruled the country under state of emergency, abolished the 1962 constitution, and abolished kingdoms that were dear to some people and set up his own constitution without the consent of the people. At the time of the coup, Many opposition politi politicians were in jail without a trial. But by the time Amin had left, however, close to half a million people had been killed extrajudicially, and the economy was in shambles. Basic commodities like sugar and soap were scarce. Life was nasty, short, and brutish, like the historical natural state. People opposed to the regime were shot by firing squad in public, and so were some criminals, I must add. In short, those of us who experienced Idi Amin's rule cannot forget the horror and the economic deprivation we underwent. While those that benefited from his rule, certain tribes, people who got businesses in the expulsion, and those who came after his rule seemed fascinated by his anti-Western outlook and his pro-Pan-African speeches. But we cannot forget the horror. As for Mamdani, he's the author of books such as The Citizen and the Subject, which looks at colonialism, and his experience and his research both led him to believe that the way we look at colonial rule is just wrong. After a new president came to power in 1987, he gradually had a policy of inviting Indian Ugandans to come back. There are many Ugandans there now. Here's a refugee who returned, said uh, one that was exposed. Uh, when a refugee who was, uh, left Uganda during the first expulsion came back and said, 
The first time I went back to Uganda, a bit of culture shock in the sense that the stories I've heard from my family were completely different from the reality I saw. I don't know whether it's just because when you leave somewhere, people reminisce. They said there were lots of Asian people around, lots of integration, place was bundling, bustling, weather was fantastic. When I got there, I find that people in Uganda are still quite angry at us because of the way they feel they were treated. They always felt like they were treated like second-class citizens. If you go to the rural communities, the average Ugandan still holds quite a lot of anger for Asian people. But there are others that have moved on and are trying to make a difference, say, it's our country now, we're trying to rebuild it. There's lots of investment from China. Things are moving, things are changing. I think there's more equality. A lot of Asians who have returned to Uganda have changed their attitude. And the newer Asians are just trying to fit in. They're not quite aware of all the racial tensions that existed back in the 1970s. I want to thank you for listening. The website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. A lot more coming up. Hey, I mean, connect during this time while you're in the lockdown. You know, I'm at uh, Twitter, at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. We have a Facebook group, uh, Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. Um you know, you just go on Facebook and find that. We also have a My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook page that you can like. The page, you just, you know, go ahead and like it. The discussion group you have to join just because there's been too many, I don't know, spam people selling shoes or something like that. So I have to, but, uh, you know, if you're a listener and uh, not selling anything, you know, I'll uh, I'll let you join there. Um, so think about that. If you like the program, tell someone about it. And uh, thanks for listening. We do have that premium product, too. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com if you just want extra things. Like, for instance, I'm on that channel talking about the original SARS outbreak, uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year book, some similarities to today, strangely enough, and also a little bit more about Kent State, a little background there, and talking about my interview with Howard Ruffner in the last episode. So you can get that. It's as little as $2 a month. You get extra content. Uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Look, I know it's also a, a rough economic time, so don't anybody put yourself into um, tough financial straits doing something like that. But if you're um, okay and you want some extra content and support the show, by all means. Thanks for listening.
Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.